Welcome to this edition to Voices of Experience. My name is Paul Casey, and I have a very special introduction I'd like to make today, Eric Crema. He uh, is going to be a special contributor to Voices of Experience going forward, and his segment is going to be called Spotlight on Success. I like that title. And today, I think you have one of the best guests to really start the show with, Jeff Renner. Tell us about uh, yourself a little bit, Eric, and about your guest today, Jeff. Well, first of all, Paul, thanks so much for this opportunity to be on the show. I love your show. I've been a fan of Voices of Experience for a long time and a champion of yours, too. You just do a great job. So thank you for uh, giving me the honor of actually getting some of this time and being able to do Spotlight on Success. Uh, yeah, you're right. Uh, Jeff Renner, what a nice guy. I, I, I mean... I had an idea for the interview going one way, but we started talking about Mount St. Helens and his experiences there, his harrowing experiences, and I never knew how close he was to danger. But I remember as a uh, young, young lad watching him on the news talk about the lead up to Mount St. Helens and, of course, the the incredible video that they got and uh, all the reporting that he did. I just didn't know how involved Jeff Renner was, not only in with weather, but uh, all the other things he's involved in. He's got some really interesting things that he's doing for the community, too. He's one of these people, kind of like you, Paul, just never stop moving. You're just doing something new all the time. You're learning about things all the time. And isn't that really what life's all about? Certainly is. I have a quote at the end of the show that says very much just what you said. Looking forward to that. I'm going to be talking to a Megan McBride. She's the research analyst for CNA's Center for Stability and Development. And we're going to be talking about kind of a heavy subject today, extremism in the military. Now, there's been a long history of extremism in the military going forward. And I didn't really know about that. Mm-hmm. To put in perspective, 12% of the people who stormed the Capitol, they were from the military, both retired and active duty. So a little heavy, but I think it's a very interesting subject. Lighten things up with my last interview, and that's with Andrew Stark. He is the president of the California Winter League. Baseball is going on in Palm Springs. As you know, Eric, Mm -hmm. I'm down here right now. It's a really fascinating league that they've developed here, and I'm not going to go into much detail now. It's going to be at the end of the show, and you can hear about what he has to say. But if you're visiting Palm Springs, this baseball league is going on through February 15th. And in the interview, you will find out how you can attend the ball games. Two quick segments. uh, One's called 1900, the year 1900. It puts into perspective, I think, of the challenges we're going through right now as to what it was like growing up in the 20th century if you were born in 1900. So back with my interview with Megan McBride in just a moment. Extremism in the military is a very real threat to our national security. A new report from CNA suggests a novel approach. Deal with it the way you would treat sexual assault. Megan McBride, research analyst in CNA's Center for Stability and Development, is with us and she's an expert on international security issues, including terrorism, radicalization, and ideological violence and has conducted and published research on domestic and international terrorist movements. I guess my first question would be, Megan, what is CNA? So CNA is a a uh, nonpartisan, nonprofit research and analysis organization uh, in the the greater D.C. area. We do research on a range of topics with national security implications and touching on issues that are sort of of the public interest uh, related to security, emergency response, uh, uh, things like that. 
I see. And what does it stand for, CNA? Is there like Columbia National Association or is it just CNA? It's actually just CNA now. We're just the CNA Corp. Okay. Uh, corporation years ago it stood for the center for naval analysis analyses okay. we, just, we don't we don't exclusively do naval analyses anymore so yeah i could see and historically that was a big part of what you were doing that's correct I and see. we still do work in that area just not exclusively anymore so now we're the cna corporation okay that was just bothering me i go what is cna so anyhow you've answered that question now how did you get into this field the broader field of national security? Yeah. Or just uh, what attracted you to this? I don't know that there's a really sort of quick answer to that. It's something I've always been interested in. One of my first jobs out of college was working at a place called the, the Center for uh, Violence Research, or the, the Violence Institute of New Jersey, actually, I think it was called. And since then, I've just progressed in this direction. So I did my doctoral work looking at religious terrorism and religious extremism. I spent a little bit of time working for the federal government as an intel analyst. Um, and those things kind of all came together and fit together nicely. Okay, excellent. We're talking today primarily about the concern or the reality of military extremism, but some of that is being addressed in other issues that CNA has looked at in the past, and that's addressing sexual harassment, assault, and racial extremism. So I don't know where I want to start in this because there's so much here, but why don't you just kind of take the lead and, and tell us what you were trying to accomplish? Sure. So, you know, after January 6th, I think in the first kind of weeks after after the attack on the Capitol, there was a a lot of, uh, I think, national reflection about what had happened and concern about what had happened. But as we started to collect data on what had happened, one of the really interesting findings that emerged was that 12% of those who were charged with activities that day um, had a military background of some sort. So that was either they were active duty or they were veterans, but they had some kind of a military background. And this raised a really interesting and concerning question about extremism in the military. And that was really one of the launching points for our looking at this issue. Now, extremism in the military is a big topic, right? It, you can be a left-wing extremist or a right-wing extremist. You could be religious or atheist. There's, there's lots of ways to be an extremist in the military. And the way we tackled this was to look at one type of extremism. And if, if you think of extremism as a pie, we picked the piece of the pie that we thought was really substantive and a real issue, and that was racial extremism in the military. And what we did then was we asked ourselves, well, how can we learn from the past? Maybe we don't have to reinvent the wheel here with figuring out how to deal with this problem. Maybe we can borrow from other things the DOD has done. And we looked at how the DOD had tried to tackle the problem of sexual harassment and sexual assault. Now, their solution to that problem hasn't been perfect. They certainly haven't solved that problem, but they've learned a lot in the past 20 years. And then tried to ask ourselves how we could apply some of those lessons learned to this problem. So if you're sort of trying to change a culture of misogyny uh, that sort of is uh, maybe hospitable to acts of sexual harassment or sex-based discrimination or sexual assault, how do you use some of those tools to change a climate or a culture of racism that's perhaps hospitable to racist jokes and race-based discrimination and race-based violence? And that was the premise of the report. I see. So what are your findings? Well, I mean, to some degree, our findings are, are that this is just an extraordinarily complicated problem and that it, it is as complicated as a problem as dealing with the problem of sexual harassment and sexual assault. That you can think of both of these problems, racial extremism and sexual harassment, and sexual assault as existing on continuums. That it, the problem isn't just the cases of assault and rape. 
And the problem isn't just the people who engage in, in race-based violence, but it's also the things that are perhaps uh, slipping beneath the radar, the jokes, the comments, the inappropriate behaviors. And those are much, much harder to, to address and to root out, in some part because some things are protected by the First Amendment, some types of speech, and in part because they're sort of hard to count. You know, we can we can try to count how many times a sexual assault happens or a, or a rape happens, but it's very difficult to account the number of times that a sexually inappropriate joke happens. And the same is true for racial extremism. We just don't have good data on the problem. And this was one of our recommendations, that the Department of Defense needed a system to collect data on the problem so that they could do a better job of understanding how big or little it was. And some people are claiming that this isn't a problem at all, and some people are uh, claiming that it's a serious problem. And the reality is those are all just educated and informed guesses. And until we collect some good data, we won't know. So that was one of our primary findings, is that we needed better data. Okay. So what else, uh, in terms of military extremism, looking at that, are there things that you learn from the attempted coup on January 6th? Events of January 6th, they're complicated because it wasn't just military participating, right? So it was a, a broad swath of Americans participating. Right, like you said, uh, like 12% or something of exactly. the whole. Okay, so yeah, I don't think anybody's thinking the military was exclusively involved with that even before this, but there were elements, but 12% is pretty high. Nonetheless, 12%. that's another judgment call, but nonetheless, uh, what I'm just, I guess, driving out, what can we take from it right now? And maybe it's too early for that. I don't know, but um, we're, you know, it's a year has passed and, you know, it, it it's on a lot of people's minds and I don't know what we can uh, draw from what occurred that day. And and I, I used the word attempted coup, and that's my personal opinion. I don't know if everybody would agree with me in that, and that's okay. But, you know, it was a very scary time. And what we're saying is that there are elements of the military, either active military or retired, that were involved in it. So that is pretty frightening. No, I think that's right. It is frightening. I'm almost reluctant to say that there are good things that came of that event because it was really such a terrible, tragic thing. But I think maybe one of the good things that did come from it is a sort of renewed desire on the part of the Department of Defense to deal with this problem. So one of the things that they did after after January 6th happened was the Secretary of Defense stood up a committee to look at the problem of extremism. Uh, in the military, and they've recently released a number of recommendations. They recently released a report outlining some recommendations for how to better grapple with this issue. Great. Could you, uh, uh, you know, outline some of those? I can talk about one of them in particular, which is pretty interesting. Um, the military doesn't have a definition of extremism, uh, in part because it's just so extremely difficult to define. But what they do have is a definition of prohibited extremist activities. And the reality is that that list was a pretty out of date. Um, it was written before a social media world. It was written before the kind of interconnected world we live in right now. And it, it just wasn't adequate anymore. So one of the things that the committee did was they updated that list. And they were much more kind of careful and nuanced and granular about what is and is not permitted and permissible if you are a member of the military. Um, one way to think about this is to say the way some of it had been written was really focused around groups and group membership and supporting an organization. And maybe that worked really well in an era where we had 
formal groups like the KKK that you would join. Um, but so much happens now without those kinds of membership cards, right? Like there's, there's so many ways to sort of support extremist narratives and participate in extremist conversations online that don't require joining a group. And so the new guidelines were written in recognition of that fact, that, that you can be an extremist without have, being a card-carrying member of an extremist group. Um, and that, so that's one really major recommendation that they made that's really interesting and that will hopefully sort of go a long way to keeping the sort of soldiers and service members who are protecting our country, uh, ensuring that they're not simultaneously participating in activities that undermine the nation's security. Well, my feeling, again, being uh, out observing this, uh, like, millions of other citizens is that and I just throw this out. It seems like overly complicated trying to figure out who does what. And to me, I know it's more complicated and it's not simple solutions, but sometimes you kind of go, well, you have a right to protest. You have a right to be in D.C. on January 6th and hold a flag and, and yell at, you know, whatever was going on. But once you went to the Capitol and went up those stairs and broke into it, that's a whole nother area. It's pretty easy to me that they're under arrest and are lawbreakers. So what? what's the big, um, I guess, trying to really penetrate in terms of what happened there? It's pretty obvious what happened there. As I said, you, you got a right to protest, but once you went up those Capitol steps and five, what, officers were killed, you participated in that, you should be out of the military. You know, there's no question yeah. about that. I think, you know, I think the, the January 6th in that case, though, in that sense, it was a little unique, right? And that it did culminate in... Oh, yeah, it's unique. It never happened in American history. Yes. Yeah, so it was yeah. unique. I'll give you that. But it also is unique in that there was violence involved, right? Absolutely. And it, the reality is that when we look at this sort of continuum of harm that we're talking about in, in our report, part of what we're saying is that... The, the violence is a real issue, and it's really important that we um, address the violence. But there's a lot of other stuff that's also an issue, right? Um, and I think part of the, the desire for a more nuanced definition of prohibited behaviors is in recognition of that fact. Well, I guess um, catching me at a time right now is that I think they're going to get away with it, Trump and everything. I'm going off topic here, but I'm really afraid that what happened there on that day somehow is going to be sweeped under the carpet. Nothing again to do with you. And that's why I'm kind of reacting the way I am. And that was a coup. It was an overthrow of the government. And somehow this guy is going to walk and whatever. That's my worst fear. And um, I, I hope I'm wrong. I hope there's a, a point that comes out. And again, I am. this is beyond what you're talking about, but I'm a little amped up about it right now because we have just hit the anniversary and, and there's a lot of committees reporting. There's a lot of information coming out. But I don't know. You get the next Congress to come in in 2022 and the Republicans take over and they're going to just, you know, whitewash the whole thing. Sorry about that, because I'm no, going no, off you on know, a tangent. The reality is I think we're all a little amped up right now. The events of the last, you know, January 6th was um, was a really upsetting event, I think. Uh, for everybody, uh, was um, everybody was sort of taken aback by what happened on January 6th, I think, or at least the vast majority of Americans. Um, and I, I think that, that that was in large part why we were kind of galvanized to address this issue. But I can at least kind of like feel productive by looking at hard problems and trying to come up with solutions. And I don't have a great solution in this report, um, but we do have some really good recommendations for things we could do that would move us close. But I'd rather sort of stand outside, collect the data and then tell you. 
Yeah, no, and and that service is very much needed because, yes, we're all, as you say, and I'm amped up, as I say, when you come to this point, but we need to have people like you and what you are doing to stand back and do the analysis of it, and it will be much better received ultimately rather than a reactionary. I do understand that, and I do appreciate what you're doing. Yeah, I think that's right. Try to trying to put the data out there uh, so we can we can address it, right? And 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 you're also right that the, the there's the scope of the problem is bigger than than racial extremism in the military. But um, this is one way to sort of chip away at the problem, right? Like the, the men and women who make a commitment and a sacrifice that that comes with serving the country, they deserve to work in an environment of respect and an environment that values them. There's really no room for racism or racial extremism in the military. It's, it. it's just not what we owe the people who are making that commitment to protect our country. And if we can, we can get rid of that, we'll have done a good, even if we don't solve all of America's problems. Uh, no, not that, not that I can think of. I'll just add that, um, you know, our report is public and it's online. So you can find it at www.cna.org. You could just click on our research, and if you scroll down a little bit, um, there are two reports. One is uh, seventy pages. That's that's a, the super long one, but there's a five page or two if you're looking for a shorter read. Okay, excellent. I did the shorter read. I think it's well done, and it does identify what you have been talking about. So I appreciate very much yeah. your time, Megan. Yeah, thanks for having me, Paul. Again, my thanks to Megan McBride. If you do want to read that report that she's been talking about, you can go to www cna.org that's www.cna.org and then click down to our research and what she's been talking about there is 70 pages of uh, research that goes into great detail and then there's also a five page summary again my thanks to Megan McBride There are two minutes to go in the big game. The Tampa Bay Buccaneers are down by a touchdown. With the game on the line, who would you rather see to come in to play quarterback? A rookie quarterback who'd never played in a big game? Or a six-time winner of the big game? If a six-time winner was your choice, then experience is important to you. And that's what Voices of Experience with Paul Casey is all about. People with experience in their chosen fields. A variety of topics are explored, including local and national public affairs, self-employment, travel, lifestyles, health and fitness, history, and adventure. Welcome to this edition to Voices of Experience. My name is Paul Casey. Voices of Experience is simulcast on AM 880 KIXI and 1150 AM KKNW on Wednesdays at 3 p.m. Voices of Experience is also rebroadcast on Kixie Sunday mornings at 11 a.m. Visit VoicesOfExperience.com and take a five-minute self-employment quiz. The higher you score on the quiz, the higher your prospects for success. That's VoicesOfExperience.com. I just ran across something recently, and it was uh, titled Born in 1900 Perspective, the year 1900. And uh, I think it's a little dated now, but not too much because it was written with the pandemic in mind and how difficult we are having with this. And the perspective of this is to look at what other generations have gone through in this country and the world. So I'm just going to read it and uh, let you absorb the information for whatever it's worth. It certainly had a big impact on me. So again, this is what happened to an individual who was born in this country in 1900. It's a mess out there now. Hard to discern between what's a real threat 
and what is just simple panic and hysteria. For a small amount of perspective at this moment, imagine you were born in 1900. On your 14th birthday, World War I starts and ends on your 18th birthday. 22 million people perish in that war. Later in the year, a Spanish flu epidemic hits the planet and runs until your 20th birthday. 50 million people die from it in those two years. Yes, 50 million people. On your 29th birthday, the Great Depression begins. Unemployment hits 25%. The world GDP drops 27%. That runs until you are about 33 years old. The country nearly collapses along with the world economy. When you turn 39, World War II starts. You aren't even over the hill yet. And don't try to catch your breath. On your 41st birthday, the United States is pulled into World War II. Between your 39th and 45th birthday, 75 million people perish in that war. Smallpox is epidemic until you are in your 40s. It has killed 300 million people during your lifetime. At 50, the Korean War starts. Five million people perish. From your birth until you were 55, you dealt with the fear of polio epidemics each summer. You experienced friends and family contracting polio and being paralyzed and or dying. At 55, the Vietnam War begins and doesn't end for 20 years. Four million people perish in that conflict. During the Cold War, you lived each day with the fear of nuclear annihilation. On your 62nd birthday, you have the Cuban Missile Crisis, a tipping point in the Cold War. Life on our planet as we know it almost ends. When you turn 75, the Vietnam War finally ends. Think of everyone on the planet born in 1900. How did they endure all that? When you were, let's say, a kid in 1985 and didn't think your 85-year-old grandparent understood how hard school was and how mean that kid in your class was, perspective is an amazing art, refined and enlightening as time goes on. Let's try to keep things in perspective. Your parents and or grandparents were called upon to endure all of the above. You are called to stay home and sit on your couch. I tried to find the individual who wrote this, but was unable to. It just said, American author, unknown. There were many things said here that you can call out, but one of them is perspective is an amazing art. And welcome to this edition of Spotlight on Success. I'm Eric Krima. This is a chance for us to talk about folks who are doing great things in their career, charities are doing wonderful things in the our communities, our neighborhoods, and, and other just businesses and organizations that uh, make up the fabric around here in the Puget Sound. So welcome to this edition of Spotlight on Success. I'm so happy to have uh, via Zoom into our studio, Jeff Renner. Jeff, how are you doing? I'm doing great. How about yourself? I'm doing so well. And I remember back watching, of course, uh, King 5 and seeing all your weather forecasts. And you were definitely my go-to guy when it came to the forecast. You were pretty dang spot on. Well, thank you. You know, we always worked really hard at that. And one of the things people said, well, what did you enjoy most about that? And I worked with wonderful people, but it was also a matter that it was sort of like mental chess. Mm -hmm. This is a very complicated area to forecast. And I really enjoyed learning those different aspects. And then especially having the support uh, of the people that uh, I work for in terms of really being able to lay it out in detail. So 
it would apply to the people's experience that were watching us. It is a difficult thing, and uh, people kind of gripe about it. Oh, they said it was going to be sunny today, and we got some rain, you know, and I'm sure you've heard it all. Uh, and and I was even that way until I, I got a little bit into marine forecasting. I, I had a captain's license uh, for, for chartering, and uh, mm-hmm. I realized just how difficult a science it is here. Uh, can you speak to that a little bit? Is it topography? Is it um, our latitude there or longitude? There are different factors on that, Eric. I, I'd say number one is certainly topography. Uh, you, you've probably heard us talk about things like the Puget Sound Convergence Zone, mm-hmm. various other issues. Uh, and it is the way the weather interacts with the terrain. And it, literally, there's the old saying, if you don't like the weather now, wait mm-hmm. uh, you know, a half hour. Here you'd say, just drive a mile or two, <laughs> because it is really driven by the interaction of the weather with terrain. The other element is we're on the West Coast, and that's where the weather comes in from, uh, off over the Pacific Ocean. You don't have nearly as um, many uh, weather observation stations out there. And so it doesn't allow you to pick up quite the detail that, say, somebody forecasting in the Midwest or the East Coast would have. Uh, Satellite imagery is better. We now have radar not only in the Puget Sound area, but along the coast. But uh, there's still some uncertainties there. And computer models are getting much, much better. But before, uh, in particular, uh, it was very difficult to be able to calculate, come out with the uh, computations to get a good sense of how the weather was going to evolve. And it is getting better and better uh, at this point. So uh, those are the three major aspects that make it such a challenge here. Well, for those listeners who are new to the area, and this is definitely one of those uh, locations in the U.S. where people tend to move to a lot, um, you know, they may not be as familiar with your name. Let's give a little bit of background. You joined King 5 back in 1977 as the station's science reporter, right? Right. Right. I became a meteorologist, I would say, almost by accident. Uh, I came to King as the science reporter, as you pointed out, and uh, it was just a match made in heaven, as it were. Uh, We had a wonderful ownership group, uh, the Bullet family, and really supported a lot of science and environmental uh, work. And very shortly after I was here, uh, we produced the first underwater documentary called Under Puget Sound and uh, had different experiences diving with all sorts of marine creatures and environment, uh, including diving with an orca, uh, which uh, I've actually got a few video clips from that I still have. Uh, Mount St. Helens rolled around. I did a lot of the work on that and was stationed at the mountain. In fact, it's uh, a very fortunate thing that I'm here to be able to talk with you at all. We had some very close calls there. But uh, I was also a a part-time flight instructor, and they only had one person doing weather. They asked me to fill in, and I found I enjoyed it. So I went back to the University of Washington, got another degree, this time in atmospheric sciences. And then the rest is essentially history at King. I uh, started forecasting there. When I did a little research about your your career, um, it brought me back because there are those seminal moments as you're growing up and and becoming an adult that you remember clearly. And I, I completely remember um, May 18th, 1980, and, and the explosion there. Talk a little bit more about that experience, because that's something that um, it's just such a clear memory in my mind. And I, I, I know that we were watching you at the time to learn more about it. I had done a story up at Mount Baker, because they believed Mount Baker was going to erupt first, and ended up meeting some scientists from the U.S. Geological Survey, the University of Washington, and we literally climbed down into the crater while they were sampling gases. 
Turned out that we did a follow-up story with some of those same scientists because they began to see that the shift was moving from Mount Baker to Mount St. Helens. Mm. And so we would camp out down there literally, uh, I think the longest period was about two weeks. In fact, a, a quick little side story came back from one of those spills, didn't have a chance to really get showered or anything like that. They said, oh, go on the air, Jeff. And I looked like <laughs> hell, uh, you know, two weeks in a camper trailer uh, out in the uh, wilderness. And I said, but I haven't had a shower. They said, oh, it's part of the ambiance. Go down there. <laughs> and uh, my good friend and esteemed former colleague, Gene Anderson, uh, we were all done. And uh, she said, I bet a shower is really going to feel good. This is off camera, by the way. And I said, are you telling me that I smell a little bit? She said, I think that shower is going to feel really good. <laughs> I'll just repeat myself. <laughs> but uh, it was, in one sense, a story, an experience of a lifetime. I was uh, 26 years old. You can do the math to figure out where I'm at now. 68, I'll uh, withhold any suspense on that. But at 26, we were given free range over this volcano that had come to life. We were given a largely uh, complete disposal of a helicopter to fly us where and when we needed to to cover the story. Live broadcasts every night. It was an amazing experience. But all of a sudden, as we got closer to the eruption, the seriousness of this really began to come out. And we ran into things similar to what we're seeing today, where there were the scientists talking about the potential danger. There were those that discounted that because mm -hmm. it was either an inconvenience to them or they just were dubious of it. Mm -hmm. And uh, then I had literally been down there the day before it erupted, would have stayed there had we known it was going to erupt, came back home because it looked like it might be a little bit longer. And then it erupted the next morning, flew down in the helicopter. And literally, we returned to our former campsite and uh, we discovered you know, one of the victims, we ended oh, up helping geez. locate a number of the victims there. And you realize just how close you came. And we had another time that I was literally, this was a couple months later, in the crater of the volcano. And we moved out of the crater, went down to what was called the Plains of Abraham, where there were large flows of pumice, sort of gas-filled rock uh, that had hardened from one of the eruptions. And our helicopter pilot revved the engine. And that was a signal to us to get back there right away. He was very safety conscious. I didn't even have the doors uh, shut and we were taking off. Wow. And I said, Mark, what's going on? He said, he actually said nothing. Finally, we got a little bit down the Tootle River Valley, the North Fork of the Tootle River Valley. And he said, okay, there's a break in the clouds. Look back. There was this huge eruption plume that had gone up to about 30,000 feet. And we realized had it been 40 minutes earlier, we would have been in the crater and, you know, essentially we would have been at 30,000 feet. Wow. Wow. Talk about a close call. But uh, yeah. but also, uh, what a rare opportunity for a young reporter, too. It was, you know, it was one of those historical moments. And we have a we had a wonderful assignment editor who said, you know, you had that rare gift of being present at a historical landmark mm -hmm. in the history of the Pacific Northwest. And I count myself very fortunate from that. Uh, and also the people that I met, uh, one of the people that I count as a that I counted as a friend was Dr. David Johnston, who perished in the eruption. And uh, I learned so much from David, not only in terms of his approach to his job in being dedicated to the public, but also in terms of doing good science. And although mine was in meteorology, his in geology, those were lessons that I carry with me to this day. Well, you, you're so active. When I look at all the things you're doing now, too, um, you certainly don't rest in your laurels. You're an avid skier, scuba diver, equestrian. You do a lot of charitable things. Um, how about... Uh, how about an 
website that people can learn a little bit more about the good things that you're sure. doing right now? Jeff-Renner, R-E-N-N-E-R.com. Jeff-Renner.com, R-E-N-N-E-R. Both ways. Spells the same. <laughs> it, it does. People have remarked on that, and that was not by design. That's just the name I was born with. Well, talk a little bit as we uh, wind up this conversation. Um, I see, too, that you were uh, called in as an expert witness on court cases using meteorology. That, yeah, that happened entirely by accident. You know, I one of the points that I make to young people or anybody is uh, it's good to have a plan. It's good to have goals, but be alert and aware and open to opportunities that present themselves. Uh, some of the greatest opportunities and experiences I had, uh, Mount St. Helens, diving with the orca, being invited to the White House to an, uh, interview President Obama one-on-one, those were totally unexpected. They were nothing that I had set up. Mm-hmm. In terms of uh, other opportunities that uh, I have done, as I say, I volunteer dive for the Seattle Aquarium. I love doing that. Uh, I think public service giving back, you know, essentially, you know, this from radio, as I did with television, that you are a guest in people's homes, their cars, wherever they happen to be listening. And that's a real honor. And uh, I try to pay that back right now. I uh, do some public service work producing a uh, essentially a public affairs TV program, then do a fair amount in terms of climate change education. I love the fact that you're always learning. Uh, you know, and that's something I aspire to as the older I get is not to relax. I, I, I love learning new things, particularly things that I didn't know about history, for instance. And I, exactly. I don't know a lot about weather, so it fascinates me, uh, your your expertise there. Well, Jeff, thank you so much for your time today. I wish we had more time, but unfortunately, we are uh, done with this particular segment of Spotlight on Success. Uh, continue with your success, uh, please. And I want our listeners to uh, check out your website, Jeff hyphen renner r-e-n-n-e-r.com jeff renner.com and learn about all the things he's doing maybe there's something that you want to help him out with uh within those charitable aspects of things that he's doing uh jeff thank you so much for uh what you're doing here in our community and congratulations on what a successful career and a continued success as you're moving on well appreciate that very much one of the greatest landmarks has just became a grandfather a couple of months ago Ah. so that's Best. that's a new path that we're enjoying very much. I'm jealous. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you much. <laughs> and we'll be back with another edition of Spotlight on Success right here on Voices of Experience on the next edition. You're listening to Voices of Experience with Paul Casey. Today I want to talk about branding. And the information that I'm about to give you comes courtesy of Entrepreneur Magazine. And it gives like five tips that you should consider. So let me just get started with that right now. I think these are very solid recommendations. Number one, you make a list of names that sound good and look great. No problem with that. But when you're searching for the URL and you find out that it has already been taken, it could be already being used by a different company. You can find that out easy enough. Or someone else could simply own it. People buy domain names all the time, so don't give up. And if the price is reasonable, you may want to purchase that. Just check it out. Number two, don't choose your brand name based on domain availability. Make sure it sounds good and is easy to spell and easy to read. Number three, do not discount trademark issues. It's essential to perform a trademark check before moving forward with a name. Although I own my name, VoicesOfExperience.com, there are other Voices of Experiences out there. 
I did have a copyrighted in 1997, but I'm letting live and let live. I, it, it doesn't affect me right now. I'm just waiting for the day that someone gets in touch with me and said, hey, you got to stop doing VoicesOfExperience.com or Voices of Experience because we've been doing it for a lot longer than you. Again, then I'll be able to get to them and say, hey, this is the trademark. I own it. Surprise. I really believe that this is excellent advice. Make sure that you check into the trademark, and that will be a really important investment for you to make as you go down the road. Number four, take a multilingual approach. This is something I didn't really think about uh, when I was starting my business, but now we're in a global economy. After investing so much time in finding a right name, the last thing you need to do is fall in love with a name that isn't appropriate or offensive connotations to another target market. Now think about that. And number five, consider how others will pronounce and spell your name, the name of your business in this case. You should feel free to be creative as possible when you are brainstorming name ideas for your business. You do want to stand out and you want to have something catchy. But even more important than that, this is me talking, not the author, but I do believe you want to make it as simple as possible. Let me give you a brief story. I've written two books on self-employment. The first one came out in 2004. It's called, Is Self-Employment for You? Now, it's not really sexy or it's not really catchy. I understand that. But it does say what's in the book. I'm asking the question, is self-employment for you? But I'm not trying to talk you into going into business for yourself. I'm not trying to talk you out of it. This is the perspective that I think you should consider before going into business for yourself. And then that goes back to the question, is self-employment for you? Not real sexy, but it does say what's contained in that book. So anyhow, most of these tips here were courtesy of Tatiana Dumitra. Again, courtesy of Entrepreneur Magazine. Andrew Stark has been the sole president and owner of the Palm Springs Power Baseball Organization since its creation in the fall of 2003. It's also known as the California Winter League. Baseball. Why would you be talking baseball now? I mean, we haven't even played the Super Bowl yet. Good question. However, if you are living or visiting Palm Springs this winter, there is baseball. And uh, it began on January 21st, and it will run through February 15th. And during my interview with Andrew, we'll talk about the details of how you can attend some of these games or all of them if you're down there. Let's get right to the interview with Andrew Stark. How did you get involved with the California Winter League? Well, I started the California Winter League with my staff and a couple coaches back in 2010. And uh, we have been operating ever since then, every January and February, helping uh, close to 800 players sign uh, professional spring training uh, contracts or contracts to go to spring training and uh, move on in their professional careers. How did you come up with this concept? It was one that we had seen and participated with the Arizona Winter League for two years in 09 and 08, um, where they were utilizing a facility out in Yuma, Arizona, and they were coming out and bringing teams out here to play in January and February. And then multiple players, coaches came to me and said, hey, the concept is great. 
but rather than being in Yuma, Arizona, we'd rather do this in Palm Springs, California. Can you put this together and do this here in Palm Springs where we don't have to base out of Yuma and we can base out of Palm Springs? And I said, yes, and we put it together and uh, have been operating it ever since. And the, the key to it is making sure that you have the right individuals representing professional organizations out here evaluating and helping develop the players. So let's describe, or you describe for us, uh, what the concept is. I think it's, again, really fascinating, and it's kind of like pay-to-play, and it's that sort of situation which runs counter to what you would think. Getting into uh, the mechanics of this, I think it's absolutely fascinating, and it took a couple times for you and maybe a couple other people to explain to me what exactly this is, because it's kind of counterintuitive as to, let's say, athletes coming into play. They pay you to play. That is correct. It is a winter showcase league for current professional players and free agents. So what the athletes are doing is they're paying for their opportunity uh, to be out here. And in return for uh, their payment, we are housing them in Palm Springs in a resort downtown Palm Springs for uh, a month. We're providing them all the equipment, the bats, the balls, uh, the fields, uh, the umpires, uh, the uniforms, and we hire men that are managers of independent professional teams and scouts for professional scouts uh, for major league affiliated organizations to come out and work with the players and evaluate them and ultimately sign the best players from the league to be able to go on to spring training. So, yes, they do pay, but the bulk of what they're paying for is their lodging, their two meals a day, uh, the equipment, the services that we're providing from clubhouse attendants to athletic trainers, uh, gym memberships, all that kind of stuff. So when they get here, it is the professional atmosphere that they desire, and it's giving them the opportunity and the platform to earn a professional uh, invitation to spring training. The Frontier League and us have been partners for almost a decade. And what our partnership with them involves is uh, they guarantee that at least one, if not two, uh, additional spring training roster spots specifically for CWL players. Now, in exchange uh, for that, we are giving them, you know, part of the pick of the litter for coming out here and we're guaranteeing more uh, managers and coaches from that league uh, paid opportunities to come out and work with our players and uh, be a part of this league out here. They love it from the standpoint of it's a great place to evaluate talent. Everybody's looking for young uh, new talent that they may not have seen across the country or across the globe that they can put in their league. And hopefully those players can even move on uh, to affiliated baseball. The players that come out here obviously all want to play affiliated. And if they can get an opportunity uh, right out of here to play affiliated, they certainly do. But a lot of them do go to independent professional teams and the Frontier League for over a quarter century has uh, been a very prominent, prestigious and well-respected uh, uh, independent professional league uh, in the Midwest. It's getting close to play ball time and uh, you're going to be up and going. What uh, the season just begins in what mid January and runs what for a month, right? 
That is correct. All of our athletes and coaches will be arriving on January 19th. We start our workouts with our MLB Scout Day and team practices on Thursday, the 20th of January, and then we jump right into games on uh, Friday, the 21st. Uh, every team will be playing here at our stadium and our complex, and then games go on seven days a week until the end of the season where our championship game is played on February 15th, and then everybody takes off and heads home on the 16th. I love baseball, as you know. We've had this discussion before, but I have been watching the games probably for about three or four years now, and I come to I come to frequent I frequent the ballpark, and uh, one of the things that I really was struck by is that some people feel baseball moves too slow. Some people say there's not enough scoring, but when I watch the games, I'm really surprised at the high scoring of it and how quickly the games go. I think there's seven innings, but usually the game lasts about two hours or so, even if the score is like 10 to 8. And the games are usually really close, and it's a lot of fun. I, like so many others, love the sport of baseball and don't think that it needs a a stop clock or a shot clock or a time or anything like that. But I do like it when the game moves along and moves along quickly. Uh, We have been very lucky that we've had a lot of talented players that have come through here that do keep the games moving on. You're right. They are seven inning long games. And that's uh, a function of the pitching. We don't, because we're playing games seven days a week, these teams are constantly playing. We don't want to burn all of the pitching. We have to give guys rest. They need days off to work on some of the skills that we're trying to help them develop, not just playing games. So we have workout days. So with um, six teams in our league, each team plays two days in a row, then has a day off, plays two days in a row, and has another day off. So those off days are workout days for their teams then keeping the games moving. We certainly do that every single day. We draw fans to the ballpark who love coming out and getting a hot dog, a soda, a beer, uh, enjoying the beautiful 65 and sunny degree weather of Palm Springs in January and February and watching these athletes uh, out there on the field. We start games at 10 a.m. in the morning uh, with game one and then game two starts at 1230 in the afternoon. So you you figure 10 a.m. games run until about noon. We flip the field, get the new team, uh, the next two teams out there warmed up, ready to go, and we have uh, game two uh, starting at 12.30 p.m. Yeah, and the ballpark is absolutely great for viewing a game. You feel very close to the action, and uh, it's just a very good deal, and in a beautiful setting, too. I Just to let people know, if you're going down to Palm Springs like I am uh, shortly, um, the ballpark is located on South Sunrise and East Barista Road, and that's where the public library is. And then right over to the side is the ballpark. You really can't miss it. No, the stadium was originally uh, developed in in 1961 as the spring training home of the Angels. It had been uh, a field used by the community, but the uh, Angels came in and Gene Autry uh, made it a stadium. And uh, it's it's been here ever since. We've got an auxiliary field behind our outfield wall that uh, we certainly utilize. And uh, as you said, we share a parking lot with the Palm Springs Library. This is a, a great location with the mountains in the background, the palm trees. Uh, sit back, watch baseball, and the weather. Uh, you know, pretty much uh, nine times out of ten, it's it's a gorgeous Chamber of Commerce day uh, that time of year. Oh yeah, January, February, March. That's the sweet spot for uh, uh, Palm Springs, I think. 
But uh, that's great. So there's, I looked at the flights. A lot of people are coming down that way. So I suggest that really anybody who is likes baseball at all or even just wants to enjoy a leisurely afternoon or morning or afternoon, um, they should do that. Is there a phone number that uh, they can call or maybe a URL address that they can consult uh, if they want to go to a game or games? Absolutely. If you, if you want to go to a game... Uh, first, we always have tickets available at the box office. Uh, we shared the, the game times 10 and 12, 30, seven days a week, starting January 21st through February 15th. Come to the ballpark and get a ticket. If you want to give us a call, it's 760-778-HITS. That's 760-778-4487. If you want to find out uh, a little more information on our website, you can go to CaliforniaWinterLeague.com. That's CaliforniaWinterLeague.com. And then you certainly can go into any social media platform, Instagram, Twitter, uh, Facebook, and uh, check out all the information. You can find out when game times are, uh, staff information, all that stuff on those sites as well. And they'll even lead you back to the website. Outstanding. Anything else before we go? I really appreciate your time. And uh, we do have uh, half of our teams are... Uh, United States-based names. So we have the Palm Springs Power, the Palm Springs Chill, and then for the Pacific Northwesterners, we've got the Oregon Jacks. Then our three Canadian uh, name-based teams are the British Columbia Bombers, the Alberta Grizzly, and everyone's favorite, the Canada A's. The Canada A's. So everybody can come out and they can find a team for them, whether they're coming from the Pacific Northwest, they're coming from Canada, they're coming from somewhere here in Southern California. Uh, try and uh, make sure that there is namesakes for people to uh, to cheer on. That'll make it a lot more fun. Andrew, look forward to seeing you soon and uh, good luck. And I'm looking at the forecast in the next 10, 12 days and it's exactly as you advertise. Beautiful low 70s Palm Springs weather. My thanks again to Andrew Stark who's the president and owner of the Palm Springs Power Baseball Organization. As I mentioned in the interview, I've been to numerous games, and it's a very enjoyable experience. So again, if you are down in Palm Springs, I strongly suggest that you check out the California Winter League, and it runs through February 15th, 2022. That's all the time we have for this edition to Voices of Experience. My name is Paul Casey. Before we go, I want to welcome Steve Mills as the executive producer, and he's going to be pulling all these segments together. Of course, Benny Mathers will stay with us and doing what he's been doing so well for so long, helping edit this show and helping edit me, which (laughs) takes some work. Eric, that was an incredible interview with Jeff Renner. I mean, I really do remember Mount St. Helens myself, but... I didn't realize that he was in harm's way as much as he was. I do remember him reporting from it vaguely. Mm-hmm. But that's amazing. Amazing interview. Yeah, he's a great guy all around. I really encourage people to go to his website to learn a little bit more. And wonderful job to you, Paul. I love the fact that in this show, there's such varied but solid information. And uh, you may you may be, mm, I kind of like that segment. But then you love the next segment. You know, it just kind of goes back and forth. It's always a surprise, and it's always educating. That's why I love Voices of Experience. Great job. Good. And thank you for just being such a great contributor today and going forward. That was, again, I I really enjoyed that interview. Next week, just want to let you know that uh, Michael Kotman, he wrote a book called Segregated Skies, and it's about the first African-American commercial airlines pilot. His name is David Harris. He's still alive. He's in his 80s. 
fascinating talking to him about what it was like to be, uh, uh, again, you talk about Jackie Robinson in baseball, well, this guy was the first pilot on a commercial airlines jet. I also am going to be talking to Stu Elway, and uh, he's the pollster. I have him on quarterly talking about what Washington voters are thinking. There'll be some real surprises. As a matter of fact, uh, Danny Wesley in the Seattle Times yesterday talked about Stu Elway poll. If you want to read that before, I think it would be very helpful. Some things are trends are really going in very interesting ways. Any comments about what you heard today? You can call the Voices of Experience hotline at 425-653-1166. That's 425-653-1166. If you wanted us to play your comments on the air, please keep your comments short. Voices of Experience, people with experience in public affairs, travel, fitness, education, and entertainment. That's what we talk about. My name is Paul Casey. Again, thank you to Eric Crema, the special contributor today. And Eric, what are you going to have on next week? Well, I tell you, it's getting buttoned up, and I think you're really going to like it. But that's all I'm going to say at this point. Leave a little suspense. Okay, we'll be waiting for that. Quote of the week, every day, do something that terrifies you. Gloria Steiner. On today's Celebrity Pets, I'm talking with Jeff Renner, famed local meteorologist and author about Lucy, who is a Siberian Husky. Welcome, Jeff. Good to be with you. I love the name Lucy. Well, uh, she's quite a comedian, and so we chose that because it reminded us of I Love Lucy, which is a good description of our emotions toward her. She also has as a full name uh, Lucy Sky Diamond because she leaps, and uh, (laughs) so she sort of uh, is considered from the Beatles song Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds. That's awesome. Well, you too have a really active lifestyle, and it would seem that Lucy is probably a perfect fit for the family. She is. She's my exercise partner. Okay. Uh, we go hiking. We go, uh, literally, I'll go bicycling, not with my road bike, but with a trail bike, with her running alongside me, uh, because I can't keep up with her otherwise. I can't run. My knees won't take it. Uh, I've clocked her up to like 20, 22 miles per hour in wow. short spurts. And then during the winter, she loves the snow. I love the snow. And so we'll take her up and do what we call ski joring. And basically, it's cross-country skiing. You have a waist belt and an elastic band connecting the two of you. And it goes really well unless a rabbit runs across the trail. (laughs) Suddenly, you're skiing fast. (laughs) Uh, It's exciting. (laughs) Well, it's funny. My doctor, I I was all proud to tell him, I was, oh, I'm going on walks with my dog. And he goes, what kind of dog do you have? I said, well, it's a Chihuahua mix. He goes, so you're not really going on a walk. You're just kind of sniffing around and you're not getting any exercise there. So he called me out on that. (laughs) I'll loan you Lucy sometime. (laughs) Thanks. (laughs) So Lucy's about three, right? Um, what has she meant to the family? Oh, uh, you know, our other, she's the third Siberian Husky we've had. And our other Siberian Husky named Roger was also a rescue or a rehome. And he passed May of 2019. And uh, we got Lucy in December. We needed some time, as all pet owners can associate, just to sort of uh, uh, internalize that loss. But we got her in December 2019. And so we had her during those early Mm. shelter-in-place periods. And it was really a sanity boost for us. Although she was crazy, my wife and I thought we were never going to be able to sit down for a meal together, (laughs) uh, nor watch TV, because she was just very demanding of attention. because she'd been from place to place to place, but just is a real definite member of the family. As you pointed out, she gets me out. We just love exploring the world together. Well, Jeff, thanks so much for spending a little bit of time with us on this edition of Celebrity Pets. I really appreciate your thoughts. 
Delighted to be with you. Go enjoy, Lucy. And, and folks, Celebrity Pets is where you discover why the biggest celebrities in your life are often your furry friends. <laughs> 